that was where the light came on that I could actually do this and beat it and not be drunk anymore. Hi, this is Mary May. Welcome to One of One, a podcast made by and for only children. Being an only child can be a lonely experience, but growing up between two countries with divorced parents can feel even more isolating. As a young teen, Monique Margraff turned to alcohol as a coping mechanism, following a path similar to her father's. It took her decades to quit, but this November, she will be four years sober, and in this episode, Monique shares her saga from discovering alcohol to finally escaping the hold it had on her life. Monique is the mama of two cats and has finally found peace and serenity in her crazy life. Our conversation today took place via Zoom. So Monique, I'd love to hear the story of how you got your name. Well, I I don't think I was named, you know, after anyone or or anything like that, but the story is kind of funny because my American mother and my German father had some disagreements, I guess, on on what the name should be. And anyways, my mom chose the girl name and he was insistent on the boy's name if it was a boy, if I was a boy. And um so if if I was a boy, he wanted to name me Anthony. I can't remember the middle name right off the top, but anyway, Anthony Margroff. And uh, the funny thing is about that, he cannot pronounce T-H in Anthony. So it was a running joke that he would always have to call me Tony. (laughs) And so, but my mother uh, picked my name and Monique Elizabeth Margroff. And like I said, I don't really think I was really named after anybody, but she did a wonderful job. I love my name. I've always loved my name. And even if I ever got married, which I don't see happening, I would not change my name in any way, shape or form. I don't, I think I'm probably the only person in the world that has that exact name. Which is so rare these days. Mm -hmm. And Monique, how was it that you came to be an only child? Um, Well, I, apparently owe my existence to my father. He was the one that wanted a child so bad and pushed my mom into it. She admits to this day that she never wanted to have children, a child or in this circumstance. And uh, so he made it happen. I, she, I, I guess she was pretty resistant from what I understand. And he pushed the issue and finally she agreed to have one baby. And here I am. So, and as far as, yeah, she was there, that was only one. When, when I came along, there was no question of ever having another baby. I don't think because their marriage was not so good. He was an alcoholic and uh, she basically had to support everyone on her teacher's salary here. And um, it just, it just wasn't a good situation to, to bring another child into the mix. So here I am standing as an only. And you mentioned having an American mother and a German father. So were you born in the U.S. or in Germany? I was actually born in Germany. My mother 
taught overseas in the Dodds school system over there on base on an army base or an air force base. And, um, she, when she first graduated from college, she said she went to, uh, Japan and then Puerto Rico. And then she ended up in Nuremberg, Germany to teach. And that's where she met my dad at a bar. <laughs> Apparently the story goes that he was a singer and in a local bar in a band. And so it's always a funny thing to me that <laughs> I don't know why it's funny to me, but I just think it's very interesting that, you know, they met in a bar situation, especially considering later on in my life, which I'll explain later. So anyway, she met him and then they got married. Uh, and about a year later, I came along after it took a while, I guess, for my dad to convince my mom to have me. Like I said, then when I was two and a half, we moved to the States. And then we stayed in the States until I was around nine. And my mom and I alone went back to Germany. And what prompted the move back to the States? Well, my father had a big say in that as well. He wanted to go to America. He was insistent on it. and my mother finally broke down and agreed to it and she i don't think she ever was very happy here in the states she you know a teacher's salary teaching overseas is <laughs> like double probably what you get as a teacher's salary here in america and um so she finally agreed and we were dirt poor for a while we we shopped at thrift stores and she had her budget when she went to the grocery store and brought a calculator and did not go a penny over and it was it was just we we definitely lived very poor not that I ever wanted for food or anything we weren't that poor but yeah that's it was all my dad's doing again how we ended up in the states and where in the states did you grow up in Wichita Kansas which is where I still live today that is where my mom's parents lived. Well, actually they lived in Harper, about a 45 minute hour drive away from Wichita when we moved back from Germany. So they were close and I had a good relationship with my grandparents and I had some aunts and uncles and cousins and stuff like that here in Wichita. So it was, I mean, I had family, it was, it was a good, it was a good life. I remember being pretty happy as a child. Um, as far as my grandparents, yeah, I had a great relationship with them. They just, just imagine a typical grandparent child relationship that that was them. Um, especially when they lived out in Harbor Harper, my grandpa would let me, I remember him letting me ride on the, the riding lawnmower. He had like an acre of land out there with a huge garden. And so I'd get to go out and pick stuff and, and dig up potatoes. And I mean, it was, it was like the best thing on earth for me to go see my grandparents. And during this time, what was your relationship like with your parents at home? Well, it deteriorated and deteriorated some more. Um, they, his drinking was by this, you know, by the time we moved to the States, his drinking was already out of control. And I don't remember much from 
about probably about five or six on is when I start having memories of the fights and the just the just them not talking at you know being distant with each other and not sleeping in the same bed um I just I just the most thing I have memories of is them screaming at each other because he would steal money from her purse because he never worked I mean never held down a, a job of any sort more than a couple weeks and uh so he would take money from my mom's purse and she would catch him and then all heck would break loose was i in any way in any danger no and i don't remember him ever hitting her uh, just just screaming just you know verbal matches and uh but like i said i i never felt in danger of course i felt sad at that my parents couldn't get along but i've you know at that point i didn't really understand the whole entire situation as i do now so it was the best thing for me that my mother finally decided to divorce him she should have done it a lot sooner how old were you when your parents divorced i was seven do you remember how you heard about their divorce well my mom told me that daddy was gonna have to go away and of course i was i mean i just i do remember feeling immense pain as even as a seven-year-old i can remember that day exactly like it happened yesterday it was like i just remember it being very warm and I, uh, watching him you know the the scene i don't know if you've ever seen the movie um hope floats with sandra bullock there's a scene in that movie where the little girl is at the end of the driveway screaming and crying and just throwing an absolute fit that daddy's leaving and pulling away for good. And that was, that was me. So it was devastating to me. I cried and I cried and I cried. And I remember that I had tap and ballet class that day and I insisted on going, even though I was in no shape to go. And so my mother reluctantly took me and, um, so I didn't make it through the entire class. I broke down and my instructor, I remembered her taking me out and sitting me down on the front steps and um, having a good talk with me about what was going on. And of course she told my mom about all that later. And it was just, it was, it was a rough time. And I did get to see him a few times after the divorce, maybe if I had to guess five to 10 times before we moved back to Germany when I was nine. So for two years, I only saw him five to 10 times uh, after he drove away that day. And that's kind of the story. It was heartbreaking, but um, I, it had to happen. And I understand that now. I didn't at the time. And when you would see your dad after their divorce, what, what kinds of activities did you do together? <laughs> pretty crazy wild stuff I remember um it all revolved around drinking there was never a time when I don't think that I remember when he wasn't just absolutely smashed and I remember being at you know house parties with him at his friends and lots of drinking and sometimes he would just pass out and the kids would be on their own I did usually have kids other kids to play with that were there with their parents or father or mother i don't know but anyways yeah 
it, and I do remember a few terrifying car rides where I was in the back seat, pretty much wondering if I was going to die or not because he was so drunk. He wasn't paying any attention to traffic of any sort. Tell me about the move back to Germany. How did your mom present this to you when, when you were nine? Well, very carefully. She, I mean, she, I think she knew that I wasn't going to love the idea. Um, what child would, and since I had become accustomed to seeing my grandparents and my other family here, she just approached the subject as she need we needed to go back because she would make more money so we'd be in a much better financial situation than we are you know here with shopping in thrift stores and such like i said so that was that was it basically at nine years old we sold the house had a garage sale sold you know everything that wasn't nailed down and off we moved to germany for a new adventure and boy was it an adventure. <laughs> How was it for you when you arrived in Germany? It, it wasn't so good at first. I had to go on, I remember having to go on sleeping pills because I was just so anxious and, and I just, I didn't settle well into the, to the, the new culture. I mean, everything was different as you can imagine. And I couldn't speak to anybody unless they spoke English, of course. Um, we stayed in a hotel for nearly a month before we got our apartment. Um, not that that's a bad thing, but it, it, as a, as a kid being thrown into a new culture, it, it was a bad thing because I didn't even have the stability of a home. It was in a hotel. I don't know how to explain that, but so yeah, I had to go on sleeping pills and I was very awkward. I was a very awkward child from that point. I think, and not that I wasn't, I guess I wasn't saying that I was awkward here in the States too. I maybe a little bit, but not having another soul that I knew and just being thrown into a brand new culture, it was, it was very hard for me to adjust. Since you had extended family in Germany and you had a German father, did it feel at all like you were kind of it was a homecoming in a different way or did it just feel like a completely foreign country? It just felt like completely a foreign country, especially, I mean, I did see my grandparents at some points, but they didn't speak a word of English. So I could never really speak to them. I always had to have a translator, which my mother spoke pretty decent German, not, not grammatically correct necessarily, but she could carry on a conversation. <laughs> so no, I mean, I never was very tight with my, my German grandparents, obviously. I mean, how, can, how tight can you be when you can't even carry on a conversation? I probably saw them a hand, yeah, maybe, oh, maybe once a year, maybe twice a year, something like that. And then I did have an uncle, though, in Erlangen, which was only about a 25-minute train ride from Bomberg, where I lived that I became pretty involved with. I saw him quite a bit and he took me to lakes and we went to festivals and, oh, we went to a huge foshing party, which was one of the best parties of my life. But we rode our bikes everywhere and uh, it was a good, good relationship with him. So you arrive back in Germany, you 
feel kind of socially awkward or trying to get your footing in a new country. Tell me about when you first discover alcohol. Okay. Um, well, when I, I mean, I, I tasted a few sips with my mother, she would have people over and she would make margaritas. And of course I was insistent that I needed to try it and have a sip. So she finally broke down and let me have, you know, a couple sips of alcohol here and there, but it wasn't until I actually drank, I, I was three months away from turning 15 when kind of things just all fell apart. and. I went, I looked a lot older than I was. So I was able, not that in Germany, it really matters, but you can get into bars really early. It, it was never a big deal. I never needed a fake ID or anything to get into a, a club. So the first night I remember going to the Green Goose was with my friend, Michelle, who also lived there in the building with me, who was two years older than me. And that was the first night where I was bought drinks by the GIs there and got pretty tipsy. And just, I just remember thinking from that point on how wonderful it was that I was able to come out of my awkward shell and be able to socialize and talk to people and have attention showered on me. And everything just seemed so rosy and, and, you know, it was rosy to me at the time. And unfortunately I liked it and I liked it a lot. And that led to definite history of alcoholism in my life. And when you say attention, was it just male attention you were seeking or just an, any kind of attention? I think pretty much any attention I liked just the fact that I could, my inhibitions would go away. I mean, I could talk to anybody. And before I was this little awkward person that just kind of stayed in her own little shell, but with alcohol, it was a whole new world. Everybody was suddenly friendly and, and there were, it, it took away the boredom of my life. It took away the sadness, it just, it just was like a, a miracle drug, so to speak. I don't know how to explain it. Anybody that's had problems with addiction will understand me on that note of how easy it is to get addicted to something that makes you feel so good. Oh, and of course, sorry. And of course there was very much sexual attention as well from the, the GIs there on the, the army base. So not only was I drinking, it turned into drinking and sleeping around with a lot, let's just say, of people and getting myself into really bad situations that I should never have ever gotten myself into in the first place. And did your mom know about any of this? I think she knew. Um, so there's no way she couldn't know. I mean, you can't hide something like that very well. But she always was the type of person that was a very was very emotionally distant. So she just put on her blinders and pretended like it never happened. And I pretty much ruled the the household at that from like fifteen on. I was just a mess. I I don't know how to explain it other than that. Um, I still got good grades. 
I managed to hold down an A average in school and even graduate as valedictorian, not of a huge class, let me mind you, but anyways. So my mom, she's, she to this day doesn't really have talk or discuss anything about feelings. You bring up anything that's a little bit uncomfortable and she just goes right back into her shell and puts on those blinders and changes the subject. That's just how she operates. So we did not have a close relationship, no. Were you hoping for her guidance during that time? Yes, I think I just remember my behavior becoming more and more and more outrageous in an attempt to gain her attention, even if it was negative attention, any sort of acknowledgement of, hey, I need help here. And I just never, I never got it. Never, never got it. And that is, that's, it's still a, a sore spot in my, my world today, but I, I understand it now. And I've, you know, been through therapy and I've been through support groups and I've been sober for a while. So now I understand why she is the way she is and there's just nothing I can do about it. So why fight it? Did your drinking remind you at all of the early experiences that you had with your dad and his alcoholism? You know, they really did. At that point in time, I don't think I cared one single iota about anything but me and having fun. Um, but I mean, it did creep into my mind and my uncle, who I mentioned earlier, Bertram, he would point it out to me too, that I was drinking too much. <laughs> him, considering I spent less time with him than my mother, if he knew I was drinking too much, my mother had to know too. Does that, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So, um, did I connect it at the time that I was following in my father's footsteps? Probably not. I didn't care. It, it, it just didn't matter to me. So in the midst of balancing school and this fraught relationship with your mom and partying, an opportunity arrives on your doorstep. Uh, tell me more about that. Yes. Um, my uncle Bertram, he actually had connections with a person that was in the, the singing industry, the recording industry. And so he knew that I could sing and he decided that he would get us me together with this man. And he did. And the man wanted to sign a three-year record contract with me. That was, you know, I, I, to this day, I love to sing by the way. And I was so excited. I was on cloud nine, just absolutely giddy and excited. And just, I, I can't explain how it felt until Bertram and I went to my mother with the contract and the one time in my life, she puts her foot down. This was it. She said, no. And I was only 17 at that time. So I had no legal way to sign it myself without her consent. She was bound and determined that I was going to college right after high school ended. And that was that. And that's what I did. That's what I was forced to do is go to college right after I graduated high school. And to this day, that's definitely a <laughs> resentment that 
tends to creep back into my mind a lot because my life would have been so much different if I would have had that contract. And I mean, who knows what kind of life I would have lived. Granted, I understand now looking back that probably it wasn't the best thing for me because like I said, she knew that I was in trouble. She just didn't know how to handle it. So technically her signing that contract might've been signing my death certificate because of, you know, getting into a life in the music industry. I mean, look at Prince, look at Winnie Houston. I could have ended up, you know, with a, a serious drug alcohol problem. Not that mine wasn't serious. I'm not saying that it was very serious, but she, I guess she uh, knew that it wasn't a good idea to put me into that atmosphere because I was already in so much trouble with drinking. You mentioned at the beginning that your mom met your dad when he was in a band. Was that just sort of something that he did on the side or was he kind of a professional musician? You know, I really, I think it was just something he did on the side. I know he was very into electronics. He was, he could fix anything. And I think he worked for, a, you know, like I said, he never worked for it one place very long, but he did a little tinkering here and there at different electronic shops where he would fix radios, telephones, you know, that, that kind of thing. He literally could take in something out of the trash can and rewire it and it would work. He was so talented in that way, but he, like, he just never, uh, <laughs> never put his, uh, mind into it, I guess, so to speak. It just kind of occurred to me that your dad was in this band and he suffered from alcoholism and you're at this point in your life where, you know, your mother recognizes that you're also abusing alcohol. And I wonder if she felt like if you pursued this music path, that in some ways it would, you know, set you down further in the same path that your dad walked. That's a really good thought. Yeah. Cause she uh, saw firsthand twice, basically that, uh, what drinking can do to a person. So, I mean, I, she was protecting me. I know that's what it boils down to, but at the time I did not care. <laughs> I was so mad at her and <laughs> wow. It was, we talk, if I had a relationship hadn't suffered before, it definitely suffered after that. I hardly ever spoke to her. And I mean, I was just absolutely hateful to her. Any way I could possibly be hateful, I was. Yeah, understandably, given that you felt like that was sort of your ticket into a different life. And it would have been, and I probably wouldn't have gone to college. Well, I wouldn't, I was 17 when this was all happening. So that would have been an additional two years of having to stay there for the contract versus going to college. So tell me about college. Did, did you go to college in the U.S.? Yes, I came back to go to Wichita State University here in Wichita, Kansas, and I was put into the dorms, as which makes sense considering my mother was going back to Germany, 
So here I am, I'm thrown into the college dorms and that did not go well. I miss Germany. I miss the, the partying, the GIs. Not that I wasn't partying here, don't get me wrong. My cousin and I, we partied hard here in the States too, but um, not like it was. It, it was just a whole different world coming back here as it was to me when I went back to Germany when I was nine. So here I am thrown into this dorm situation and I just remember <laughs> my poor, I guess you call him a, a guidance counselor or something, whatever, a, a counselor of some sort that they assign you when you move in to help you transition into dorm life. I think he had a, he was very, very concerned with me because I was just a wreck. I mean, I would go to him just in tears, bawling my eyes out that I wanted to go back to Germany and this wasn't the place for me and I hated it here and da 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 da. So he had a lot on his hands with me. <laughs> so eventually I won that battle. I, my mother finally agreed after a year of being in the dorms for me to move back for a while to, to live with her in Germany. So I did, I moved back and I was in Germany for um, about a year, a little over a year, I think. And then finally came back for good to go finish college after that. And was your second time re-enrolling in college, was that experience different than the first time? Yeah, I had my, I didn't, uh, I wasn't in the dorms. I actually got my own little apartment, a little tiny studio. So I did better in that situation where I had my own space. I've always been one of those people that likes to have my own space and the dorms definitely wasn't that. But anyways, so yeah, I did better on the second time around and it still took me a long time to get through college, but I did it. It took me about eight years instead of four years to get through. I often wonder, you know, here I sit with this bachelor's degree and I really haven't done much with it in my life. It's one of those, well, I'm glad I wasted all that time and energy on that. No, <laughs> <laughs> no it's, it was a good thing to have. It got, it, it gets your feet in the door at, at my banking job that I had. So it, it came in useful. Did you continue to drink during that time that you were in college oh yeah oh yeah it was just uh, my life was just a big party drugs were involved as well at points i mean i i don't think i was ever addicted to anything but alcohol because that that was always my drug of choice so to speak and but other substances were involved along the way I did need a fake ID here because you had to be 21 to get into most clubs. So I actually used my cousin's ID. She had an old driver's license that it expired, but nobody cared back then. You know, that was a long time ago. So I was able to use her ID. We looked enough alike where I got into clubs with her ID. And she wasn't like a, I was a club person. I always wanted to go to the clubs and parties. She really wasn't a club person. She was more of a house party kind of girl. So I had both, both ways. I would 
go out clubbing and then go back to a house party with her wherever she was at at that point in time and of course i had other friends too that we were constantly at a club i mean i probably spent 20 percent of my life in a in a club situation a bar situation i should say so yes but the partying definitely continued and did you try to quit yes i have tried i many a times over the years i didn't really stick at all until i walked into celebrate recovery it's a, a christ-based group that is i mean it's worldwide and it was held at grace point church here and i walked in and met carla and for whatever reason that night that would have been about 2010 about 2009 probably now that i'm thinking about it and i walked in and there was nobody there it was a night that it was an off night the weather wasn't great it was freezing and just nobody had shown up and there was carla the pastor's wife and so i walk in and i guess i needed to unload my entire life story at that point to this poor woman <laughs> she was just the sweetest kindest soul that i and i still am very good friends with her today she sat down with me and she obviously knew that i had to get something off my chest and there i went just spilled out my entire history to this woman and I, all the time i'm expecting her to gasp and go oh my gosh that's horrible or you know in some acknowledgement that i was a horrible person and that never happened and then i realized well maybe this group has something that i i want because i've, I've never was never in an environment where i wasn't judged by my past and these people honest to goodness i mean they care and they listen to your story but they don't judge you at all they don't care it's all water under the bridge it's all about going forward and being sober going forward instead of looking back and dwelling on what you did or didn't do so that was my first walk into recovery and it was a shaky ground you know many years i went in and out in and out in and out and then finally about four years ago I found a, a, I tried another Celebrate Recovery because that one had actually closed down. They stopped doing their services. And this is at another church here in Wichita. And I went through an intense six-week step study. I mean, it's, it's intense. You go, you do every single step and you answer uh, questions from a workbook every single week and you share your answers with this small group. Then you give your testimony at the end of it and so forth and so on you do your inventory which that was an eye-opener too that my sponsor today tells me that my inventory was the time where she saw me change that was the when the light came on that i could actually do this and beat it and not be drunk anymore what does it mean to do inventory um, you basically write down everything that hurts you or that anything that you feel has been wrong in your life, like my mom being emotionally distant or 
oh, just anything. And you write it down and you put how you feel about how you felt or how you still feel about it. And then you have to share all of that information with your sponsor that was assigned to us uh, with the group. So here I was having to share my deepest, darkest secrets with somebody that I barely even knew at this. This was a person that was assigned to me, which actually turned out to be in my favor because I think I do much better telling a stranger my stuff than I do telling somebody that really cares about me. I don't know how to explain that other than I guess I like the, I guess I'm a kind of a little emotionally distant myself because of my mom. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I kind of like the anonymity of, of a stranger versus talking to like Deb, who's one of my really, really close friends that I can, I can tell anything to. I just felt like it would be better for me to do that particular inventory with a stranger. And I did. And it was great. <laughs> mm, yeah. That's step four, by the way, to take a personal inventory of yourself. And how long did doing every single step take? Um, the step study lasted six weeks and we met every single, now that I think about it, I think it was 12 weeks and, um, every single week we would meet and go through the questions that we were assigned that for that lesson, uh, or that step. And, um, it was just a really awesome experience. Changed my life. That's for sure. How many years sober are you today? I'll be four years in November. Wow. That's incredible. I know. This is, this amazes me a lot. It really does. Looking back at how many times I messed up and thought that everything was hopeless. But, you know, you kept trying. That's one good thing my mom installed in me at an early age was that there is a God and God loves you. And I, I never really stopped believing that. So I think he was always there nudging me on, on the shoulder going, girl, come back to me. You know, you're not totally lost. You're, you, you got this, you can do this. And finally, finally, I did finally get it. And you've maintained it. So yes, very yes. impressive. Thankfully, thankfully, thankfully. Thank God. <laughs> that is, it's all his doing because there's no way I could have done it on my own. Well, Monique, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and, and telling your incredible story. And thank you for letting me do it.